today's episode of Stuff That Matters, we conduct perhaps our most moving interview yet. Ricky Johnson is a five-year Marine veteran and a public speaker. Just last year alone, he presented close to 100 sessions, speaking in jails, prisons, schools, churches, with law enforcement, active duty military, and veterans, conferences, and treatment facilities. He actually spoke to our staff and residents at New Hope about a year ago. But his story goes much deeper than that. We talk about his upbringing and childhood, joining the Marine Corps and having a son while he was a senior in high school, some of the challenges he faced, which included addiction and substance abuse, his son taking his own life, the felonies he was convicted for, but also how he was able to turn those low points in his life into turning points for him to make a change. He explains how he was able to mend relationships with loved ones, friends, and even start new relationships like the powerful one he has today with his wife. It's those relationships and those past experiences that impact not only where he is, but who he is today. So, prepare to be inspired and moved by the story and message of Mr. Ricky Johnson. We are very excited and honored to welcome on uh, Ricky Johnson joins us here on Stuff That Matters. Ricky, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, Patrick, I'm very honored and humbled to be here. Thank you for having me on. Ricky, it's awesome to see you. Um, so for folks who are listening that don't uh, know you, again, we're going to kind of do a deep dive in your story. I don't think your story can be told in, in two minutes, but maybe just um, start with just kind of broad strokes about, you know, who is Ricky Johnson? What do you, you know, where you been? What are you doing now? And then we'll maybe sure. go off on some side roads from there. Um, in the big scheme of things, I'm a drop in the bucket. Um, I'm a guy that's made a, in my past, I made a lot of very bad choices. I learned from it, overcame it. And I'm just trying to share the gift that was given to me. And that's a gift of hope. Um, I'm a five-year Marine veteran. Um, I'm also a three-time convicted felon uh, for methamphetamines and DWIs done some time in prison, uh, felony probation. Um, here throughout the conversation, we'll go more in depth about uh, my criminal history and my past. But uh, currently, I'm a, I'm a public speaker who travels throughout the country speaking at jails. Like, like Patrick mentioned, anywhere that I'm invited uh, to, I show up and give my time. Um, so at the end of the day, I'm a pretty simple guy that's try- just trying to make a, make a huge impact and leave the world in a better place than, than I found it. When did the speaking start? When, when did you really start telling your story to others and saying, hey, you know, I think I've got a story to tell that that could be used as a vehicle of hope? When did all that kind of get get kicking into gear? Um, around around 2015, um, that's the time frame that my son took his own life. He, he committed suicide. He was 18 years old. And that that's probably what, it, you know, um, gave me the boost to get to pursue what I'm doing now. Um, I also lost both parents to substance use, to alcoholism at the age of 49 and 54. Uh, but when my son took his own life, that's when I, that's what inspired me to get on social media and just share with her my entire life. Um, I pursue public speaking. I stutter. I still talk fast. Uh, forget what I'm trying to say. I'm not the greatest speaker, uh, but I'm going to show up and give you, I'm going to give you my very best every single time. I've never canceled a session out of 300, out of 300 sessions or more. Uh, when I began public speaking, 
I would just get on social media and share my entire life with transparency. Every bad thing that I had done, you know, got high in front of my son, sold narcotics, you know, let my son get high in front of me, intoxicated, and just sharing all these very humiliating things um, by me, by me exposing my entire life and, and really and willing to risk embarrassment. I gained confidence, uh, but I also inspired other people. You know, through me, they saw, like, it gave me a sense of worth and purpose. They're like, you know, Freaky can take responsibility for these very humiliating and embarrassing things in front of millions of people. I can take responsibility as well. Uh, when I began public speaking, um, I felt like God was calling me to do it, and I would stand in front of a mirror for hours with an iPad, crying and sweating and stuttering, and I would be, I would ask God, like, why are you calling me to do this? I'm terrible at speaking. And what I always try to remind people is, you know, whatever we fear the most, when we overcome that, that's usually going to become our greatest strength. And that's what public speaking was for me. I mean, if you have told me six years ago that I'd be speaking in front of uh, 600 healthcare professionals, speaking as a keynote speaker or going into a prison or speaking in front of law enforcement or even here today, I never would have believed it. Uh, but I just kept putting myself in these uncomfortable situations, gaining more confidence, gaining more, more, more momentum. And ultimately, this is just I feel like this was God's plan. This was God's plan uh, for my life. Yeah, because I've met you a couple of times and I think you're I think people would be surprised maybe if they saw you on social. But I think you're probably a pretty introverted guy. I think you're you're, you're yeah. introverted, you're yeah. pretty kind of mild mannered, very respect, you know, and then um, but on social media, like you said, you are just an open book mm -hmm. and sometimes you're open wound you just kind of let it out there and and probably one of the most vulnerable um i think mike and i were talking about this we talk about social media a lot i think kids kids tend to be very vulnerable on social media but sometimes adults are, are less so we, we kind of still want to maintain that 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 image and that veneer and i think you are just very raw which is i think why people respond to you yeah um, and there's times that you know social media has benefited has benefited my life tremendously. But those of you who have followed me, I catch hell as well. I've been I've been called everything you can imagine, threatened, um, slandered, just because I'm so transparent about my own life. It's never to point the finger at people. I use myself and my experiences as an example, and that causes people to get up very uncomfortable because it you know it can force us to look at ourselves in the mirror. And a lot of times our truth can be uh, very ugly and hurtful. And it's been a double-edged sword for me. Um, people have said the most foul things about my dead son. Um, oh. I don't, I, and I do my best not to engage with these people. I don't, I don't react to them. A quote that I always share is, you know, when a man has lost control, he's at his weakest point. And you know, by me staying composed on social media and not reacting, I was, I've been able to gain a lot of opportunities, you know, in places that are way high, you know, from people that are in a lot higher places than I'll probably ever be at. So. But yeah, it's it's um it's been social media overall has been a blessing, but there's also those people that have that they try to uh, try to shoot those fiery arrows at me. One of the things that I that I'm hearing just from that last minute or two of you sharing is an extreme like emotional discipline, right? Where <clears throat> if somebody were to say something foul about my son, I don't know if I have that. I don't know if I have the ability to have mm -hmm. that emotional discipline. And if I could draw this line back to your former life, if I can say that, right, where there yeah. seemed to be no, I would think emotional discipline probably wasn't present, right, when you're in your addiction phase or or whatever we're calling it, right? Can you talk to that a little bit? Like, I, I think your story, and I've heard it, and I've met you, and 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 I watch you, and I follow you. Your your story is astounding, and one of the things that 
is so astounding to me is that that discipline that you, that you just alluded to. Yeah, great question. So in my past, um, I lived very reckless and unpredictable. Like I didn't have anything to lose because the reality is I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't fear consequence. Um, I wanted to die to be honest. So I didn't. I just. I lived very reckless. Today, you know, I always tell people this: whatever we invest the most time into, whether it's negative or positive, that's what we're. Gonna, that's what we're going to become the most protective of. So for me, or in value the most. So for me. My career, reputation, marriage, freedom, and recovery, I protect those things at all costs. Um, and I don't have any second chances left. So when it comes to reacting to people in a, you know, vocal or, or physically, I'm aware of what I have at risk. And I'm not, I'm not willing to risk that for anybody. Um, for me, I know if I get very impulsive and reactive, it's going to lead to, a, it's going to lead to a, um, an, an impulsive decision. I know for a fact it's going to come with, re with regret and consequence. Um, when I say the regret, you know, I, I may feel good in the moment about reacting and, you know, saying what I have to say or, you know, get it, feeling this release of, of anger. But I have a heart and I know that I'm going to have some regret down the road where I'm going to have to contact the person and be like, hey, brother. And I have I, I still have to, I've had to do that, you know, recently just because I, I misunderstood someone and I was, you know, a good friend and I was reactive to him through a message. And he, we just, it was miscommunication. And I had to say, hey, brother, I apologize for coming at you like that. So I'm just, you know, it doesn't mean I get it right every single time. I'm not perfect, but I'm very aware of what I have to lose now when before I really didn't have a lot to lose. So I hope that answers your question. A quote, a quote that I always live by is um, discipline weighs ounces, regret weighs tons. Mm. And, and I love the, I love that quote, number one, but can, do you attribute your Marine Corps experience and, and learning or building discipline there with the discipline emotionally you have now, or the, do those not correlate at all? Um, probably both. Um, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was probably a different kind of discipline. A lot of it is um, attributed to my wife. If you guys know my story, I was, I was living in a rescue mission when I met my wife uh, about 10 years ago. Meeting her changed everything for me uh, as far as, you know, she set boundaries with me and she helped me to understand uh, what was acceptable. Um, discipline is discipline is making the choices that are that are not the most benefit or that are not the most enjoyable, but are the most beneficial. So it's just something that's taken a lot of, you know, regaining my discipline from the Marine Corps has taken um, it's taken a lot of a lot of commitment, and a lot of effort. It, did, it didn't happen overnight. It just it took a lot of practice. Okay. Yeah, I love, and, and, you know, okay. go ahead, Matt. I'm sorry. No, I was just gonna say, I love how you talk about um, Julie on your social media. I think it's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. She, I, I definitely would not be here today without her. Um, Like I said, she set boundaries with me in the beginning when we met, you know, I was a very reckless, promiscuous man with no moral values and principles. She's the epitome of all those things. And I knew who I was. I knew who I wanted to be, but I didn't know how I was going to get there. And you know, to have Julie sit in front of me and hold me accountable and, and enlighten me. And when I say enlighten me, she would tell me what I didn't want to hear, but what I what I needed to hear. She would say to me, "Ricky, listen. You know, I, I hear you saying one thing, but I'm seeing another." And she said, "I want to I want to share with you how you appear to other people." And when she told me the way that I appeared to other people, that probably that is that is probably what began my transition. You know, that, that was prior to my son taking his life. I thought I was a pretty cool, likable guy, 
but I was very unprofessional. I was arrogant. I would overcompensate due to insecurities. And I just didn't really know how to conduct myself. And, th- you know, through her explaining to me the way that I appeared, it hurt. It made me it ups- it made me angry. You know, you know without, I wouldn't react toward her, but it, it just made me mad to think about that's how I was, that's how I appeared. And I didn't want to be that way anymore. So it took a lot of, uh, took a lot of patience from her, a lot of guidance and me being, you know, humble enough to accept it and, you know, work through it. You know, I'd love to, if we can go back in time and just, you know, walk us through maybe early upbringing, childhood a little bit. I know that you, when you came and spoke with our youth, you touched on sure. some of your youth and even some of the some of the, the highs and the lows that maybe paved away for some of your challenges. And if you could open up about that, that'd be great. Sure. Um, I was raised, you know, by my, my mother and my stepdad, um, my, my biological father, he was in and out of my life due to how due to alcoholism. Um, I was raised in, I was raised in substance use, uh, raised in bars with my dad. When I would get to visit him, my family would let me taste alcohol at the age of like four or five and six, you know, at a, at a very young age. And guys, from the beginning, I, I blame no one for the choices that I made. I take I take full responsibility for everything. But, you know, being exposed to that, it impacted my life and I aspired to be that. Uh, what I always share with people is, you know, our frequency comes from what we see the most frequently. And even as a kid, it's going to it's eventually going to come out in our behaviors, what we see in here. And that's what it was like for me. Um, also, as a small child, I was violated sexually by a family member. I was molested. That also had a very traumatic impact on my life. You know, going, you know, even to this day, um, I got to high school. Um, I made, you know, I made good grades. I was, I was athletic and I think I was pretty well liked by my peers. Uh, the summer before my senior year, my son was born 17 years old. I was a boy having a baby, thought I was a man. I had no clue as to what I was doing and I needed some structure, some guidance and discipline. So I joined the Marine Corps, uh, the Marine Corps. They obliged. They're very, it's a very it's a very extreme environment, very obsessive and competitive. And it was a perfect, you know, adding substance use into the mix. It was a perfect storm for me because I had this obsessive, addictive personality and I and I excelled in the Marine Corps. But having that other piece of me always kept me grounded. You know, but overall, I had a good, you know, obviously, you know, when we look back at things that, you know, our, things our parents instilled into us, I don't blame my family. They did. They did the best that they could for me as far as, you know, my upbringing and teaching me things. But it doesn't mean they're always right. You know, they were learning in the process as well. So um, even for me, when I got to the age of you know raising my son, I, I started taking him to the bars with me because where I'm from, that was just part of the culture. And I thought it was acceptable and a rite of passage. And looking back, it was um, it was very ignorant. You know, I just I didn't know any better. Yeah. And again, I, I appreciate your story because I think it's. I think it's unique. some of your takes are unique, especially in 2023. It feels a little bit like our culture is drifting away from self accountability and a little yeah. bit more into who can I, who can I point the finger at for my current challenges? And I think neither of those extremes are right. I think there's somewhere in the middle, right? There's somewhere where self ownership and also like our family history meet because, like you just described, there's clearly and one of the things that, um, you know, I love you always say, you know, you're a drop in the bucket, but also, you know, I think your story is extremely relatable to a lot of a lot of people, you know. So, like, I, I know that you don't consider yourself special, but in some ways, it's the fact that you're not special is what makes you special because right. so many people. But, you know, you, you just described a family pattern, like an echo of, hey, this is what I saw. And so this is what I did. So it's not it's not blame, but it certainly helps. um 
helps to understand why we go through what we go through, why gravity kind of pulls us in certain directions and pulls other people in certain directions. So it's, I just, I like the balance that you strike behind, like, cause I've worked with folks who are all self accountability and almost refuse to talk about their past or their families. Cause they feel like it's disrespectful of their elders almost, or it's disrespectful of the past. And it's like, I'm not asking you to be disrespectful, but um, we can't ignore that there was some impact there, you know, and that we're all raised by imperfect people and we all become imperfect people. It's part of, it's part of, um, you know, staying in that cycle can be, it can be comfortable. It's a comfortable misery. It's what I always, that's what I always call it. Yeah. And I used to, I used to, when I hear people talk about the, you know, they're a product of their environment. I used to think, you know, that's BS, but the reality was I was 100% that looking back, you know, I was, I was, I was in that same uh, situation. I just raised in it and comfortable to me. Um, and you know, it, it took me, it took a lot for me to break the cycle. You know, obviously when I say it took, you know, me breaking the cycle happened after the death of my son. It took my son's suicide for me to take a step back and see like, you know, I need, there's a lot about me that I need to change. So, so Ricky, let me ask this question if I may. Um, sure. Your son's death and his suicide, breaking the cycle. Um, you know, I'll just I'll go ahead and share with you. I've I've heard your story more than once. I have my own children, mm-hmm. and yeah. I've often said out loud to people when I talk about you and your story, is how how remarkable it is that you, that was a turning point for you. And I and I've shared with people that I yeah. know. That I don't think that story. I, if if I was put in your shoes and had to endure what you endured, I I don't think I'm making the choice that you're making by giving back and sharing that story. I think I'm going down a dark road, and sure. that's me. And 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 I, I know that might be unfair to share that, or it's it's a little bit odd for me to share that. I'm sure you've heard that before. Um, yeah. I don't know if there's a question here other than your experience is. Um, and getting through that and coming out the way you have is unbelievable. And that uniqueness that Matt just shared, have you had folks approach you at speaking events and talk to you about having endured the same kind of experience? Oh yeah. Often. Um, I get contacted. I got contacted this past week uh, by a mother who lost her son to suicide last week. It happened. It happens to me. It happens um, often when I get approached with that. And, you know, Mr. O'Connor, I just I'll be honest with you. And, you know, when I talk about breaking the cycle, um, there's many days that I do blame myself for my son's death. But I can tell you for sure that my conduct impacted his mental health. And the way that I, the reason I say that is because the way we treat people matters. Um, I was the father who continuously put substance use, criminal activity and other people, even other other uh, other women's children above my own son. OK. And I would tell my son, I love you more than life. I'll do anything for you. Uh, but the message I was sending to him was these people and these people and people in this life mean more to me than spending time with you. Uh, my conduct proved that I was a liar. Um, you know, he had a feeling of he had, he had a feeling of not being loved or, and no worth and value. And, it, you know, he, you know, ultimately, you know, he didn't make a bad choice. But I don't blame I don't I'm not mad at my son and I'm not mad at God. You know, there's there's days that I, you know. And you, you asked me about what, you know, kind of you kind of you asked me what keeps me from going down that dark path, because a lot of people thought when my son took his life that I was going to go right back to where I was at. Right. And I never had a thought of that. I explained to you the reason why. Um, for one, 
my prior life was a living hell before I met my wife. It was, I would have, I would rather be dead today than go back to that. It was just, it was brutal. Um, and I refused to, and I refused to, to go back to it. The other thing is this, it's my wife. Um, you know, having somebody like my wife that loved me when I had nothing but three changes of clothes, um, she meeting her saved my life. She believed in me um, and she gave me the motivation to be the best possible man that I could be. Um, do I have bad days or bad moments? Yes, I have bad thoughts like anybody else. But the thing is this, you know, I know how I feel with carrying the grief of my son's, you know, the grief of my son. And I know how I feel carrying that weight. I can't imagine putting my wife through that, you know, and, and having her for the rest of her life thinking, you know, why was my love not enough for him and his love enough for me? Um, why wasn't that enough to keep him alive or keep him on the straight path? I don't want to put that on anybody, especially my wife, the part, the person that loves me more than, than anybody. So, you know, and, and also you guys, you know, the thought of the thought of letting people down, um, the thought of getting in front of a thousand people and saying, God, I can't do this today because, I did this yesterday. I, I have a conscience and I can't, I can't sell up here and lie to people. The thought of letting other people down is what helps hold me accountable. I care to be a good person. I care to be who I say that I am. And I care that, you know, when you look at me, you're like, you know, Ricky always says that he is that guy inspires me. I want to be like him. That means something to me. And I, and I value that a lot because it's taken me a long time to get to this point, you know, to regain the trust of, my, of the community um, to, you know, regain the trust of my family and peers. I, I've been committed to, to 10 years of that. So that's something that I, I hold close to me. Bouncing off of uh, Mike's previous point, And I guess my, my question would be, um, you know, what, what were some of the resources you use and some of the resources that you, you are currently using that have helped you, you know, get past the issues that you faced uh, your, your son's suicide um, you know, whether it's you know, public speaking, I'm sure that as much as it's helpful to the, those you speak to, it's probably a great healing resource for you as well to tell your story. Um, but you know, what are some, were some of the things that yeah. you did in the immediate, you know, aftermath of, uh, you know, your challenges that you faced to, to kind of help you um, move on and, you know, turn such you know, negatives into positives. Uh, great question, Patrick. Uh, there were many. Um, I can't sit here and tell you there was one specific area like there. You know, I, I wasn't ever somebody that was I didn't go to AA or NA or there was really nothing like that. I was just surrounded by a great group of supportive people who were like minded, um, who were patient, had empathy, compassion, but also would hold me accountable. Uh, people like my wife. You know, my joke to everyone is, you know, I. My wife and I balance one another out. I've got two. Fel I got three felonies and she's got two uh, master's degrees. So. We're like the yin and the yang. You know, I'm, 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 I'm fortunate to be married. Um, my wife is an LCSW, so she has a lot of experience in the mental health field. Doesn't mean it's always enjoyable to have somebody, you know, to um, kind of guide you through that process, but just to have somebody that will, you know, answer to your question, Patrick, and I get back to my wife. Uh -huh. We'd be therapeutic without being a therapist, Okay. What that means to me is it doesn't take, you know, to, to be able to it just take somebody to sit with us through the through the pain, to listen to us, to hear us out, to have empathy, to share wisdom if they have it. You know, just somebody to listen to us and um, just, just to have that in my life, to have people to listen to me without trying to fix me. That's the main thing. They would just, you know, my, with my wife, even with her experience professionally, she doesn't try to fix me. She lets me say what I have to say. If I need some uh, guidance, she'll share it. And we just keep we keep it moving like that. So I've been. There was really no specific resource going to the gym. I'm a, I'm a very structured, disciplined guy, mm -hmm. serving other people, public speaking, um, even on social media. You know, speak, you know, I, I get messages often that I speak to families through Messenger or 
people call me. So it's just it's, there's not one really specific thing. And I'm a spiritual guy. I'm not the most religious, uh, but I believe in God and I'm very spiritual. Um, I always share with people, a religious man fears hell. A spiritual man comes from it. And that's the way that I choose to uh, view myself. My wife working at New Hope is to provide students with support in the social, emotional, and academic aspect of their life. My why for being here is because these kids need somebody to hear them and see them. My why is I've been in the communities for so long with the residents, now I get the opportunity to work with the families and meet the families. My why is I like to help. I think I was born with that in my nature, so I like helping. I help everyone in the building, as well as our residents and their families. My why is a, because I want to create a safe environment, a comfortable environment for my students to be able to learn and grow. I put smiles on kids' faces that I love seeing every single day. I am at New Hope because this is a place that inspires change for young kids and for adults. I'm here in New Hope working to make a difference in these young girls and boys' lives, giving them an example of what a role model should be and leading them and guiding them in the right direction. My why for being in New Hope is the residents. I love the kids. It's awesome. My why is seeing the change and the process being made. It's just awesome to see them come in, not want to be here. Then they get here, it's like being a family. Talking about the addiction side of your story and the recovery side, it doesn't seem like you are pushing one specific path over another. You're not, you're not a pro AA, NA circle of recovery. I mean, you know, there's a thousand different, you know, seven challenges as a as a model for adolescent. Like there's a lot of different models, there's a lot of different evidence out there. Um, there's a lot of different opinions on what people should do to um, overcome their addiction, but it doesn't seem like you necessarily preach one way over the other. And I, Matt, and I explain to you why. When people do that, to me, there's a lot of fear. Okay, they're afraid to think outside of that box or their bubble because it's safe for them. I get contacted often for advice. I don't give advice. And when I explain to people, I, you know, I share my perspective and what worked for me. The reason I don't tell people this is what you should or should not do, just because it works for me, it doesn't mean it's going to work for you. If I tell you this is what you need to do or you don't do and you follow through with that and it doesn't and it's not beneficial to that person, they're going to look at themselves in the mirror and think, you know, why does this work for Ricky and not me? Um, that can set me up to be blamed for something, but it also sets, sets them up to feel this a lot of shame and guilt. And that's and, you know, when we're in that situation, it can be a very bad place to be in. So recovery to me is trial and error, you know, without 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 dying in the process, unfortunately. It's right. trying to work. It's trying to find what works for us and stick to it. And, um, you know, I, I heard a guy say a couple months ago that um, discipline has nothing to do with sobriety, which I totally disagree with. Discipline, discipline for me, like I said, is making the choices that are most beneficial. It's not always the most enjoyable, uh, but I know that I have to make these choices if I want to maintain where I'm at. Yeah. And, and, and folks that I know personally and professionally who've, um, gotten on the other side of, you know, addiction and recovery. Actually, I, I think discipline is probably the most consistent thing I, I seek. Dis discipline, routine, you know, every Sunday I do this. This is what I do in the mornings. These are the three things I'm going to do when I get stressed out. And again, regardless of what kind of approach they're taking, but discipline seems to be a pretty important part of because, 
you know, I think, um, I mean, that it's, it's kind of the opposite of chaos and it sounds like life was chaos for a long time. Sure. And, you know, Matt, something else I, you know, we all can view, we can all view somebody and in our mind, we think we can see what they're doing wrong or what, what could benefit them. But that's one of the reasons I'm so, I'm so open and vocal on social media. I use myself as an example hoping that they'll read that and be like, see themselves in that post. Uh, the, I, something I always try to remember is I never, I never waste time trying to give, trying to convince those who are committed to misunderstanding me because you know, I don't, I don't want to go in a circle. I don't, I'm not going to sit and debate with somebody right. because it can be, it can be very, that's when a, an impulsive decision can happen. Also, when we all, when we all look at ourselves in the mirror and take a step back and we're really honest with ourselves, we know when we're doing too much of something or not enough, especially if it's causing a negative uh, impact in our life. It's just up to us to own it, recognize it, and work on it. You know, people contact me often that have relapsed or what they might be going through something. What I always do is I said, I said, I want, I said, I want you to reflect on a time in your life when you felt the best physically, mentally. You felt, you know, you're motivated. You felt, you're, you felt good. And you're in a good spot. I said. What did you stop doing that was beneficial? And I said, you don't have to tell me. Just just think about it and be honest with yourself. Was it you stopped working out? You stopped going to group meetings? You stopped going to church? You know, whatever it was. And I said, try to get back to that. And I said, that's the key. But um, yeah, I think we all we all know in our mind what what's beneficial and what isn't. Yeah, it's both. It's uh, I think you you simplify it in a lot of ways, which I think is really good. You kind of take yeah. it away from this like it's not rocket science. Even though, but you also don't downplay like it's extremely hard. You know, it's ex- like there sure, are, four, you know, and obviously, like you know, the the yeah. addiction um, cycle is something that not a lot of people get out of. But the way to get out of it is actually there. There seems to be like simple, concrete things that everybody can do. But just sure. the willpower thing, and then not beating the crap out of yourself when you fall, I think, is probably a really important thing. Matt, great, <laughs> great. That's that's an, that's a comment. That's relevant relative to my life the past two months. Um, I've been very vocal about June 28th. I had to, I had to have a procedure called a, a hemorrhoidectomy. You can do the math. It was a very painful. The recovery was the worst pain of my life times 10. And the doctor told me prior to this, he said, listen, Ricky, he said, this is going to be a brutal month of recovery. And there was no way that I could I could avoid pain medication. I mean, I was mm, I had to take wow. it. I had to take it to, to get through this. And, um, I had a lot of guilt, a lot of, but there was nothing I could, I mean, there was really nothing I could do about it. The pain was so intense. It was, it was a, it was a test of mental and physical strength. I mean, there was nights that I was laying on my bed and, you know, in tears, like I was like, God, just take me. It was just that bad. As time went on, when I was going toward, I was getting toward the end of my recovery, I could feel myself go from seeking pain tolerance to seeking pleasure. And I'm just the thing is, I'm at a place in my I'm at a place in my life now where I have something to lose. And I know this and I know how quick it can happen. I was taking I was taking a walk one morning and it was like, you know, God or whatever you want to call it. But I felt God was speaking to me and it was like, Ricky, listen, whether you want to accept this or not, you're going to be an addict for the rest of your life. This is never going to go away. Um, I, I need you to you know, I, I, you're, you're really close to losing everything that scared the hell out of me. And, you know, the thought of disappointing you guys and other people, that's what helped hold me accountable. You know, it happens that fast, but I could feel, I could feel it. And as soon as I had this, as soon as I experienced that, that, uh, into that, uh, message, 
I came straight home to my wife. I was I was crying. I told her I was like, "This is what I, I felt just now," but I needed that to happen. I mean, and it. I've been very I've been very I, and I've, I've been very vocal about this surgery because it's humiliating to talk about. You know what man what man wants to talk about having that kind of procedure. You know when I was when I was public about it, I had so many people contact me through Messenger. You know, sharing with me, hey man, I've I've gone through this. I've had the same surgery. And um, I, I was I was able to support other people going through it. Another quick story about the surgery. This happened to me last week at the gym. I received a message from a young lady who is on. I'm, I'm on this Carolina Plantation group page of where I live out in the neighborhood. And I was sharing um, just sharing a video about my son's death. The day that um, I had my recovery, the nurse that was she saw my video. She sent me a message. She was the nurse that was in the recovery room on the day of my surgery. After she got me into the recovery room, she received a phone call that her father had taken her, his life. Oh. That that surgery and that video connected us just two weeks ago, and that's that was one of the unfortunate benefits of going through that situation. So I, that put me in a place to be at. Now I'm able to support her uh, through that surgery. So that was wow. kind of a blessing in disguise. You know, when you talk about the surgery, something that struck me earlier, again, you know, when I look at you, Ricky, I think when most, and let's just, we, we got four dudes on the, on the screen here. So I think this is like a guy, let's talk guy stuff. Cause like, I mean, you are a, like, I think anybody from the outside looking at it would say like, man, Ricky is a masculine, manly dude. Like, <laughs> like when I met you, I was like, I got to go get some curls in this afternoon because again like <laughs> and again you know and the marine background got the tattoo on the arm like you are a and again i think nowadays there's interesting conversations happening right now about masculinity and and what it actually means to be a man what it doesn't mean to be a man all of these things and i think you're so you, you're interesting you know i know you talk to mixed gendered rooms all the time but i, I know going into prisons it's probably predominantly men can you talk about like how your story resonates with men who look at you? I, if I just met you on the street, I'd be like, this guy's up. This is probably a hard yeah. dude. And, yeah. but then you also have this, you know, vulnerability and this openness. And again, even sharing the amount of men who are walking around, who've been sexually abused as a kid, who have never told anybody about that, I think is significant because they feel like that is a direct yeah. threat to their view of themselves as a man. So can you just, you know, grab onto any of that and sure. just talk about it? Yeah. It's, it's a huge benefit. My appearance is, um, I think a lot of people have the misperception of being an alpha male. I consider myself an alpha male, not because I'm this dominant, you know, stubborn, imposing person. I consider myself that is because I'm a confident, humble individual who can, I can make a statement without being very loud. My conduct speaks for me. Um, I always tell people the most effective form of leadership is the manner in which we choose to lead ourselves. Um, our words are who we aspire to be. Our conduct proves that we truly are. Okay. So when I go into a prison, obviously I already had, I have that experience that I can, I can, I'm relatable to them because of that. But when they see me and then they see me that I'm, you know, I, I have, I have, a, um, you know, a strong appearance, but I'm also humble enough to be like, Hey brother, I'm, I've been in your shoes. I've been, I can relate to you. So when they when they see that I'm humble enough to um, and vulnerable enough to do that, we I connect with I connect with a lot of people by doing so. People that you would never think, and I get contacted on social media often by you know other men that are like, hey brother, thanks for sharing that. I've gone through I've gone through the same thing as a kid. And, um, 
it's not something that, you know, that I'm proud of to have gone through, but I'm not ashamed of it either. You know, I, I was, I was a vulnerable kid. I got taken advantage of and, you know, by that happening to me, I've been able to connect with a lot of people in my life. So I look at it as a, I don't want to say a gift, but, um, it's been a, it's been a blessing too. Yeah. And again, I think, you know, your, your openness, um, you know, it's just, I, I love, I just love the like juxtaposition of, you know, posting something where, you know, your arm looks like Hulk Hogan, but then you're posting about how something right. this morning made you cry, made you cry because you supported a nurse through her yeah. dad's suicide or a post about, you know, something vulnerable yeah. with your wife. And again, it just shows that like, you know, men are complex, we're complex creatures and we've got a complex emotional life and inner life and trauma happens to us too. And like, so I don't know, I, I just like that, that balance that you bring. I mean, I'm sure it's a very powerful thing for a lot of, a lot of men out there who feel like they're only allowed to be one thing. They either need right. to be all hard or all soft and, and that, or. And one more thing in regards to that. I just, I, I wrote about this this morning, you know, my my language and conduct often on social media it matters because it can it can greatly impact you know our opportunities and also my reach it can it can it can mm. put a ceiling above me and I'm aware of that you know like um this past weeks ago at the gym I knew the rules I had you know at Planet Fitness you can't carry your gym bag out on the floor with you and I knew this and I have a small bag but I was just I was too lazy to put it into a locker. Well, this young lady who worked there, she come walking up to me. And I could tell she was nervous. And she said, um, she goes, sir, she said, uh, we can't have bags on the floor. Do you mind putting this bag in, in a locker? And I said, absolutely not. I said, I appreciate you enforcing the rules because I meant it. You know, she was she she gained confidence, but she also gained my respect at the same time. And the fact that I appreciated that she saw that I was approachable enough and that I and I'm not an I'm not an unpredictable guy. I'm not somebody you can approach. I'm going to just fly off the handle. You know, I'm, I'm a very approachable person. So that was a you know that was a benefit of just her seeing she could I, I'm sure she saw my energy that I that she could she was safe enough to come talk to me and she did and um I, that's something I and like I said I, I I respected the fact that she enforced the boundaries and rules with me so yeah but my conduct and, and my my language on and off social media I'm very mindful of you know who I'm talking to um I try my best not to use any curse words when I'm speaking in public in front of people, especially kids. I'm very mindful of those things. Even when I go into a prison or when I speak with the Marines, I might get a little loose here and there, but I'm not like this. You know, I'm, I try to always keep it respectfully in bounds. Uh, yeah. Ricky, you've mentioned it a, a few times already, obviously your you know commitment to, to fitness, how important it is to you. Uh, but you also incorporate it in your speaking sessions as well with the push-up challenges. Um, when did that start? Um, you know, what what has been the reaction to those and kind of the reception in your speaking sessions when, when you incorporate that? Uh, just overall, talk about you know your whole philosophy and uh, you know belief in fitness. Sure, great question, Patrick. Uh, for me, fitness and you know, working out's a huge a huge piece of my life and my wife's as well. The way that I view the gym, it's not what the gym does for me. It's what I'm able to leave at the gym. You know, any negativity, stress, whatever I have going on, I've cried many tears. At the, you know, I've cried many tears working out. Um, the way that I, I explain going to the gym for me is, you know, it's self-imposed adversity every single day. What I mean by that is I don't always want to go, but I make myself go because I know when I go, 
and I work out, I'm going to gain a great sense of, 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 of confidence and relief because I'm, you know, it's, it's like overcoming that adversity every single day. You know, I never, never have I been in a bad mood after working out, excuse me. So with mm. the pushups that I do, it's, I started it about, I think about a year ago, I was just thinking out of the box. I wanted to do something different to end, to end my presentation on a positive note because we talk about some very heavy stuff. It can be very triggering. So I wanted to do something that encourages people to uh, to compete and build a, you know, have a sense of camaraderie uh, to, to try to force people out of their box, you know, to, and to get, them to, get, to get them in front of a group of people and be willing to risk embarrassment, you know, to gain confidence, okay? So I just thought of doing, you know, competing against me doing um, for one minute to do see how many push-ups they can do if they, you know, if they. And I always say if you beat me, um, I'll give everybody in the in the room like candy bars or gift cards or whatever I have access to. And it's just something that I enjoy doing. A, qu- a question that I get asked often is, "Have you ever been beat?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I've get I've gotten beat plenty of times, but I'm gonna let them do it. They've got it to do." Um, and so I and and the, and the point of me. The point of me also is I want to let them see, like, I, I go into situations often that are uncertain. I don't know what's going to happen at the end of it, but I know no matter what, I'm going to gain confidence. If I fall down, I'm going to get back up and uh, keep pressing forward. A, a funny story about the push-up competition is I was on Camp Lejeune. About, it's been about six months ago. Um, I was speaking to a group of officers, and at the end of the, end of the presentation, <clears throat> I, I explained to them the competition. I said – I need, I need a couple volunteers to push against me for one minute. This guy was thinking I meant push physically against my body. <laughs> and he stands up. He played football at Navy. He was about 6'7", about 300 pounds. And I said, no, no. I, said I mean push-ups. He's like, oh, I thought you meant push against your body. I'm like, no. He would have thrown me use you as, that a room, ta- as a tackling just, dummy. Right. He's about to take you down. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was a huge guy. <laughs> I was going to ask this question around family. Um, you've you've give it, you've talked a lot about your wife and how inspiring she's been and accountability and and that's unbelievable. I, I love hearing that and it's through your social media posts and stuff. It's the adoring relationship you have with her. It's it's inspiring on on a many different levels. But curious if there was any reconnection or connection still with. You know your your fam your your mom stepdad dad and if I miss that I'm I'm sorry but curious if 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 there's any relationship left with those individuals. Uh, yes, sir. Great question. So before I met my wife, um, my mother had already passed. She passed in 2011, 2010, and so did my biological father. Put my stepdad through hell. Um, he's a good man and he, you know, he, he's the only father that I ever knew. And a lot of who I am today is because, of, because of how he raised me and what he instilled into me. I stole from him, I lied, you know, if, about anything disrespectful to his house and to him, I was guilty of doing it. Um, we've been able to, I've been able to, um, and, and I get to that, I get to that uh, question, Mr. O'Connor, just a quick example. My stepbrother, which is my dad's son, he was killed about 11 years, it's 1999, I think he was, he was hit by a car. Long story short, he was, he was killed. While I was in my addiction heavily, living with my stepdad, um, I was going to my dad's house to find something to steal and sell. I found the wallet that my brother was wearing, my stepbrother, the night that he got killed, and the money was still in it. My dad was holding on to it. I took the money out of that wallet and bought narcotics with it, okay? 
it's been about five years ago, four or five. It was the guilt was the guilt was killing me. It was weighing me down heavily. And I finally decided to contact my stepdad and let him know. You know, I was like, Pop, I got to tell you what I did. What he did in that moment taught me how to forgive people. And I said, I, I said, I need to tell you what I and I explained it to him. He said, Son, he said, I knew you did it when you did it. I forgave you then. So that was probably one of the greatest lessons that he ever taught me. You know, also I share with people openly. My stepdad got sick of my mess when I was in my he put me out, he kicked me out. I was divorced twice, done lost everything, couldn't keep a job, and I was homeless for a couple of years. I ended up in a rescue mission, and that's when the transition took place in my life. So I always tell people I thank my dad for what he didn't do for me. He didn't pick me back up. And that was a huge, um, you know, at the time I was pissed, you know, because I'm like, how can you do this to me? And but I had it coming, you know, I, I needed it to happen. And but now we we're we're closer now than we've ever been. You know, to hear my dad tell me he's proud of me. He comes to watch me speak. You know, he's um he's my dad's not a very um he's not as vulnerable and vocal as I am. So when he says those kind of things, it um it means a lot to me. So we're 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 close to we're closer now than we've ever been probably. And Mr. O'Connor, something else in regards to my wife, you know, on paper, we're opposites just because of my past and, you know, who she is professionally. And she's very respected by her peers and, you know, things like that. Very accomplished. And I hear it. I hear it all the time from people. You got lucky. You know, not everybody has a wife like you. Not everybody has these contacts and, you know, Riley in Washington, D.C. or even you guys. And. And I have to explain to them what luck is. I'm like, do you think that I could still be this reckless, promiscuous, you know, substance using person and my wife would still be with me? Are these people in, in Washington, D.C. or these high schools would trust me to come in? Absolutely not. I said, luck, race meeting opportunity, showing up on time, being respectful, learning how to communicate. You know, it's effort. It's effort and attitude. So I have to explain to people often. My wife is, an, is a no nonsense person. You know, she she has no problem letting me know, like, listen, this <laughs> this ain't gonna fly. So it's it, it's we're just we're we're two people that's willing that are committed to one another, who's willing to eat, willing to meet one another in the middle. You know, she supports me in my wins, and I support her in her wins as well. So we make a good team. And, and I want to make sure Mike doesn't start expecting us to all call him Mr. O'Connor though. Moving forward, well, Ricky laid the groundwork, <laughs> so get used to it. <laughs> I, I don't I don't know if I'll I'll, I'll get used. I might try it for like an hour, and then uh, if it's gonna feel yeah. Yeah. A strange. <laughs> New hope, our name, our promise. Founded in 1987 by Dr. George Orvin, New Hope has been a beacon of hope and healing for youth across the country for decades and is committed to expanding our impact across the Carolinas and beyond. At our flagship 150-bed treatment facility in Rock Hill, South Carolina, we provide 24-7 residential behavioral health care to male and female youth with significant mental health challenges. Our team of behavioral health care experts deliver comprehensive care in a safe and structured environment. When a youth enters our care, they are often at the lowest point in their life. They've endured years of trauma and rejection. They have accepted a narrative that their life is hopeless that they are destined to repeat a cycle of despair. That's where we come in. We are here to provide new hope to every youth in our care. New hope through therapy that breaks down walls and builds up their self-worth. New hope through teachers and education tailored to their unique needs. 
New hope through round-the-clock medical staff ensuring their physical health. New hope through recreation, play, and new experiences that develop life skills. And new hope through the healing power of positive relationships with every one of our team members. We break cycles. We rewrite life stories. It's our name. It's our promise. We are New Hope. So, hey, Ricky, tell us, what was your first speaking engagement? And then also just tell us about what was one of your most interesting places that you, that this journey has brought you to or, or interesting groups that's brought you in front of? First speaking engagement, it's been about five or six years ago um, and I was living in, I was living in Missouri where I'm, uh, Missouri is my home state. My friend from high school, um, he's the head football coach at a high school called Monroe City. Uh, they're a perennial powerhouse in a smaller school, but they're like, they've been state champions multiple times. He asked me to come and speak to his team. And um, I had written down on paper what I was wanting to say and, um, you know, had an idea. And I thought I was prepared and I was not prepared at all. I stepped in front of these kids. and There's probably 25, 30, maybe. And. I, it was terrible. I mean, I did, I just, I thought I was, I just did, the, I did the best that I knew how to do. And, yeah. you know, they, they got something out of it because I was, I was giving them my time and sharing some very um, vulnerable things. That was my first, um, my first opportunity. Um, I still get nervous. I'm, you know, I still have the same nerves that I've experienced, you know, from the beginning, but I just have more confidence now that when I get, when I begin, I get my rhythm and, you know, what I speak on, it was I've never sat down and wrote like this massive um, printout of what I'm going to say. I just started doing it over time and with repetition in front of very uncomfortable situations, I've been able to retain it. And I, there's what benefit. And I get your question also, um, uh, Matt, about the, the most the, the most uh, interesting places. What benefited me tremendously with my speaking is during COVID-19, I would go on Camp Lejeune. And there could only be like 25 Marines in a group. I would give this presentation some days 15 times in a row over mm. and over because you mm. can only speak for like, I had 15 minutes to speak and it was like rapid fire. It was a very physically and mentally demanding process, but having all that repetition, it, um, it tremendously benefited me. Mm. As far as the most interesting place that I've ever spoke in. Wow. That's a, I've done over, I've given over 300 sessions and probably hundred, 150 different venues, but, let me think for a second. That's a that's a uh, that's a tough one. I can't. One that sticks out to me. Yeah. One that sticks out to me just offhand is because of the way it happened. It's been about a year ago uh, when I was a keynote speaker in St. Louis at Union Station in front of 600 healthcare professionals. Probably one of the, that was probably the biggest audience that I've spoken in front of. Uh, Missouri state representative was there that I'm still friends with. I met through that. The way it happened was. Um, I was going to be co-presenting with uh, one of my colleagues named Mr. Sherman Gillums. Uh, he's a, he's a Marine, a Marine veteran. He now works for FEMA. Very, a very accomplished, interesting guy. He's also, long story short, he had a car wreck and he's paralyzed from the waist down. But um, anyway, he was going to be the keynote speaker. Well, there was a flood somewhere and he got called to, to report to this emergency and he contacts me and I had like, we had like a week left until we're supposed to be in St. Louis. And he's like, Hey Ricky, I can't make it are you up to give this presentation? You're going to be the keynote speaker. And it was just like sink or swim. I said, I got it. And, um, you know, I went, 
I you know, and and most of my most of my events, I always I'm, I'm by myself. I don't know anybody usually, so to go to this event by myself, not knowing anyone, step on this massive audience, just put it out there. Um, that's that's something that sticks out to me. Like among, I mean, I, they all have a lot that's of meaning awesome. to me, but that's just something that stuck out to me because of the way it happened. Yeah, it sounds like you were throwing a curveball, but you you crushed it. <laughs> Big time. Yeah. Before we before this thing ends, I had to get this out of my mouth, and I'll say this from the okay. I, I only speak from the heart. And I got into the world of working with kids and families in 1994 after college. So I'm clearly the, the oldest dude on this podcast. Um, but I but I've always I never brag about myself, but I've always known internally that I've done this work for all the right reasons, right? And in that those years of doing this work, I've met thousands of people doing this work. And I can honestly say, Ricky, that your story and who you are and the way you present jumps off the charts over the thousands of people that I've met doing this work and how you connect and relate to people. And um, it goes back to when I first met you a few years ago at the NC Tide Conference and you were presented with an award. And not long after that, I had a friend of mine whose brother needed assistance and I could call you. And I didn't know who to call, but I knew I could yep. call you. And be, be, I needed to get that off my chest on this call. Because I think the work that you're doing and the your story and your ability to share it and who you you are, um, there's a term in mental health care called evidence-based, right? That the interventions mm -hmm. that we use to work with kids, and maybe there's evidence-based treatments for adults, but I only know kids, that there's evidence that shows that it works. Now, I'm fairly confident nobody's followed you around and, and has done research studies on what you do. And I guarantee you there's no data that supports what you do works, but I can tell you it works. I can I can tell you from the 30 plus years I've been doing this work that the fact that you're out there doing your thing works. And I I had to say that on this call and, and make sure that people well, hear that. Well, so I, I appreciate you saying that uh, coming from somebody like you that I respect, somebody that uh, gave me an opportunity in the beginning and also um, – an opportunity during some very difficult moments in your life uh, that means a lot to me. And I, I really appreciate that. Thank you for saying it. Yeah. That, uh, there was awesome. no question attached to that, but I had to get it. <laughs> no, <off. it's> good. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Rick, I, I've got one final question from my seat is, you know, as you travel around, you know, the country now, um, you know, sometimes I don't know, you know, again, social media, whatever, just modern times, it just seems like everything's kind of going to hell sometimes. Um, it, it, and I'm a naturally optimistic yeah. person, but it can be hard not to get discouraged as you're out there just meeting hundreds and hundreds of people of all different walks of life, military, prison, schools, high school, like such an interesting, you know, are you encouraged about where we're all going? Are you what, what are you discouraged? How are we doing out there? How are people doing? My opinion, yeah, it's funny you asked that question, Matt, because I was just thinking about that this morning. I've seen way more good in the world than I've seen bad. Um, and and I, I, I shared this the other day to me, the world is as we are, you know, the, where we are in our life, how we, how you know, how positive we are, what kind of work we're doing, are we serving other people? Um, to me, when we're in that, when we're in that work, when we're operating at a higher frequency, just mentally and physically, and just being more positive. We have the ability to see more positive and, and beautiful things. Um, so that, I think, I, you know, 
a lot of people are very uncomfortable with progress. Um, they're not going to agree with it, whatever, whatever, whatever that might be. I'm just somebody that's been, I'm, I've been out of my comfort zone in my bubble for a while. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I enjoy learning about people. I enjoy, I enjoy meeting um, new people, learning about new cultures. Um, you know, no matter whether, you know, I've, I've spoken probably most every demographic you can think of. So overall, I mean, there's nothing's perfect. You know, I mean, there's always going to be negative wherever, you know, there's going to be some negative, but you know, I love what I get to do. And I think the world is, uh, there's way I've seen way more good than bad, but you know, obviously negativity sells. So that's usually mm-hmm. what we see on social media. And Matt, something else real quick. Um, actually, just a, a give you a little bit of information about what I have current coming up currently. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm speaking in Charlotte at a treatment facility, August 31st. I'm then going to be traveling to uh, Fairbanks, Alaska. I'm speaking aboard Allison Air Force Base. I'll be there from wow. the 11th through the 15th. I'll be speaking there, I think, in some other places in the community. And I'm also going to be doing a radio interview with the uh, the mayor of Fairbanks. I'll come back, and then I'm traveling to New Jersey September 27th. And then October 27th, I believe it is, I'll be flying to Missouri to speak at a, a big mental health conference there. So, I, I you know, I, traveling is difficult. <clears throat> it takes a toll on you mentally and physically. But, um, you know, when I get to connect with people, serve others, get good feedback, you know, the way my wife always says it, you know, that, you know, not one speaking engagement has ever turned out to be perfect. It's never the ideal situation. There's always going to be, you know, you're going to have, you're going to have to adjust and I don't always get it right. But the way my wife says it, she's like, Ricky, the person that needed to hear you or that's meant to hear you, they're going to be there. So I'll leave it as that. And it works out to work out for me. Ricky, one um, last uh, question for for me, just getting back into the yes. you know, public speaking. Where do you see you know that going in the next five to ten years? And obviously, you, you mentioned you, you've you know spoken to you know hundreds of people in a, an auditorium or a gym. Uh, you've spoken in more intimate settings as well. Uh, you know, yes. could you see yourself in a larger arena speaking to thousands potentially, um, or do you prefer the more intimate? Uh, you know, sessions where you're speaking not necessarily one on one with a with a smaller group, and then uh, after you know, just uh, again, if you could talk about you know the Semper Relentless project as well, and you know uh, what it's meant to you to work with them. Yeah, sure. Um, I always tell people I'll speak in front of ten people or ten thousand. You know, a lot of times the bigger audience, I think around six to eight hundred is probably the biggest crowd that I've spoken in front of. It sounded intimidating in the in the beginning, but when I got in front of the people, it wasn't as bad. A lot of times in a smaller group. I can literally feel every single person looking at me and it can be, it can be a little bit um, intimidating. I always tell the, or I always say the most intimidating groups that I ever spoke in front of are junior high kids. Hmm. Uh, they're, they're unpredictable. They're going to tell they're going to let you know what they think. If you don't get their attention from the beginning, they'll laugh you out of the gym. And you know, <laughs> I, there's times that I've had to I, have to, I have to call people out just to hold them accountable to let them know, you know, I care enough about you to correct you. I had, you know, and, you know, and, and Patrick, a lot of times, the kids that are disruptive, they're they're laughing as a defense mechanism because usually what I'm speaking oh, yeah. on, they're going through. So mm-hmm. there's so that can be uncomfortable. The mm-hmm. ultimate goal, um, yeah, obviously, I would I would love to get to the point of speaking in front of thousands of people, and you know, the more people we can reach, the better. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm never I'm always going to keep it simple. My approach, a com- approach of compassion, empathy, but also accountability. You know, wherever God leads me, uh, that's where I'll be at. So. Um, I don't have I don't have like this ultimate goal of reaching this many people, 
um, I, I'm just wherever I'm invited, I show up and I'll keep it like that. And then the uh, the Semper project as well. Talk about you know that when it, when it got started, um, what it's meant to you to you know work with them. Sure. Well, it's 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 a it's a nonprofit organization that I started about a year ago um, mm-hmm. after I resigned from a previous uh, employer. Basically, what it is is you know I I've just now began selling merchandise, tumblers, T-shirts. Um, the the organization is just it's it's set up to where I can um, accept donations, get funding to help me with expenses when I travel and you know because a lot of times when I travel there's been places that um the facilitator these are a smaller school they may not have the money to pay a speaker and I'm never going to tell a a person I need three thousand dollars to show up to impact this kid's life so by people by people donating to me and and helping me to to gain funding it helps me to pay for these trips when I'm not able to uh, receive funding uh, from the facilitator so that's what it, it helps me to broaden my reach that's what it comes down to so Ricky, uh, this has been incredible. I think we we could certainly you know keep going here, uh, but we're going to try to wrap this up. And as we like to do on stuff that matters, tradition on the show, going to give you now the chance to kind of recap your overall message and just kind of you know key points that you want to hammer home for you. What is the stuff that sure. matters? The stuff that matters. Be committed to being the man that I once needed, and that pretty much covers it all. Before I speak, before I step in front of an audience, I always ask myself, if I were them, would I be inspired by me? If I were them, would I listen to me? And that, that helps hold me accountable every single day. Wow. Ricky, thank you. Tremendous. Thanks, man. Thanks for your time. Um, and again, thanks for, you know, using all of your experiences, the good, the bad and the ugly, you know, to help other people and, and help normalize um, challenges for folks, um, give people hope. Um, we'll definitely need to have you back at New Hope sooner or later. We still have young people and staff who talk about your message. So, um, yeah, this was a pleasure. Hopefully folks um, who are hearing you for the first time can get inspired and reach out. And um, and just, again, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing out there. Thank, thank you for having me on, guys. I appreciate you. Of course. All right, man. Thank you, buddy. You can listen to this episode and all episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or you can watch episodes on YouTube. And if you're interested in being a part of the New Hope mission, please visit newhopetreatment.com for more information. Again, that's newhopetreatment.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.